BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Rachel Myro in Fermina Kim. Did you know California is hiring a team of environmental scientists to work on nature-based restoration solutions involving beavers? Yes, it's a fresh moment in the sun for Mother Nature's dam builders. Long considered a nuisance by those who dislike their impacts on human development, beavers are beloved by those who know better. But they still face a lot of threats today, and not just from clueless bureaucrats. Think droughts, floods, and epic wildfires. This hour, we talk about all things beaver with a people panel of experts. That's coming up after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in Fermina Kim. Beavers are native to many parts of Northern California, including the Bay Area. Back in the 1700s and 1800s, though, they were nearly hunted to extinction by European colonizers. By the early 1900s, there were just a 1,000 left estimated in the state. It's not known how many there are now, but it's still legal to kill them if you apply for a permit through the Department of Fish and Wildlife. Attitudes appear to be changing for the better. Let's enlighten ourselves today with some great guests. They may not be beavers, but they are what you might call beaver believers. Why don't we start with Emily Fairfax, Assistant Professor of Environmental Science and Resource uh, Management at, at Cal State University Channel Islands. Thank you for being here today. Of course. I'm super excited to talk with you all. And we also have on the line Ben Goldfarb, a journalist and author of the book Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Thanks for having me. Uh, Ben, why don't I toss the first question to you, given that you've literally written a book on the subject. I think most of us know beavers are ridiculously cute. They've got those big teeth and they smack the water with their tails and all that. But they're fierce and industrious, too. What more is there to know? Well, they're ridiculously cute and they're ridiculously valuable and important. Beavers, of course, build dams and those dams create ponds and wetlands, and those ponds and wetlands serve all kinds of important ecological functions. They provide amazing habitat for animals like salmon and waterfowl and amphibians. Uh, they filter out water pollution. They help mitigate against drought. As, as Dr. Fairfax has shown, they help buffer the land against wildfires. They provide all of these fantastic environmental services for other species uh, and for us. And, and uh, you know, I think finally, wildlife managers and policymakers are starting to recognize that, that fact. Emily, who coined the phrase beaver believers and what does it mean? That is an excellent question. I think my first exposure to the phrase beaver believers was watching the film of the same name, The Beaver Believers, uh, produced and filmed by Sarah Konigsberg, where she walks the audience through this sort of unlikely climate hero. And really what it means is that 
you know, you're willing to take a chance on a huge semi-aquatic rodent when it comes to the, your future on this planet. <laughs> ben, you, you, your book starts out with an image of what a stream looks like before humans get involved. And you describe it as a sluggish, murky swamp backed up by several messy, uh, I'm not quite sure how to say this word, concatenation <laughs> of woody dams. It, it's just sludgy and yucky. Uh, a far cry from what we think of when we think of streams, uh, but you but you say this is healthier. What? Why is that so? Yeah. Well. Well. First, it's you know it's it, in many cases in in many ecosystems around North America. You know that was more historic rule than exception, right? I mean, you know, when European uh, colonists arrived in North America, there were as many as four hundred million beavers, uh, which you know collectively would have created hundreds of millions of beaver dams, and you know would have impounded hundreds of millions of acres. And and you know you you go back through old trappers' journals and explorers' diaries and railroad survey reports, and you just read this account of this incredibly blue, wet, green, lush continent, uh, largely created by by beavers. So these kinds of wetland systems and complex, multi-threaded streams were really incredibly prevalent in North America be, prior to you know, the industrial trapping of, of beavers. And you know, in those kinds of messy, uh, you know, wetland systems provide all of those wonderful ecosystem services I mentioned earlier. You know, they're they're slowing down the water so all of the suspended pollution can drop out. You know, they're they're buffering the land against uh, wildfire. You know, they're mitigating against really destructive floods in in some cases. And they're storing huge amounts of water, right? When when Emily talks about beavers being these kind of climate adaptation heroes, that's a big part of it. You know, we're losing our snowpack all over the American West. And as we do, we need a way to kind of keep that water up in the high country. So here's this wonderful animal that creates, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of little reservoirs uh, up in the mountains, you know, storing our, our water for us, buffering against drought and, and helping us adapt to climate change. Emily, we know European settlers really didn't understand what they were looking at when they first uh, gazed upon beavers. They they thought, well, fur, um, <laughs> fur for fur hats in New York City. Um, but even today, there are people, perhaps even listening to our show now, who are thinking, you know, you know, these are pesky critters, uh, and wh why don't we talk about that? Why is it that beavers get a bad rap even today? I think a big part of why beavers keep having a bad rap today is because we want to live in the same places beavers want to live. We want to control the same landscapes that beavers want to control. And there's natural conflict there. Like we are both trying to engineer the rivers. We're both trying to live in the floodplains. And it's very challenging for people, I think, to let go of that control and to accept that, you know, beaver living there and building its dams and creating this huge sprawling wetland, that's good and maybe a better decision than some of the things that maybe we want to do with that land, maybe farm it or drain it to build housing. Like, we want to do the things that benefit us, but the beaver, I think, in some ways is doing things that benefit us even more, although we don't know it. There's also sort of ongoing issues with beavers and people where, uh, you know, they'll flood a basement, they'll block up a culvert next to a road, they'll chew on someone's favorite tree. And for a long time, people just threw their hands in the air and they're like, ah, can't deal with this. This is impossible. We have to kill the beaver, which feels pretty silly because beavers, yeah, they're incredible ecosystem engineers, but humans are also pretty incredible engineers. And to just throw our hands up at that challenge feels like we definitely gave up too soon. 
But luckily, there are all sorts of these different tools uh, and strategies that people are just starting to really wrap their heads around today and use more broadly to mitigate some of those maybe more negative beaver influences on the landscape, although negative in air quotes, it's just how we're perceiving them. So with like the flooding example, we can install pond levelers, which is basically a huge pipe that we put through the beaver dam and just take that water level down maybe six inches. So it's not flooding the road, but you still have this great big pond and the beaver's happy enough and we're happy enough and we're coexisting. And we can wrap our trees in chicken wire and do all sorts of things to deter them from chewing on your favorite willow or your favorite almond tree. Like we are also outstanding engineers. Um, I think we need to have a little more confidence in ourselves that we can coexist with the beavers. We can sort of engage in an engineering conversation of sorts. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Intraspecies. Well, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear you both talk about some of the ways that, that beavers are, are not just sort of, you know, uh, busy helpers, but but really, I, I think it was the New York Times that coined it furry weapons of climate resilience. <laughs> uh, Emily, what, what's one particular way you'd like to describe in, in which that's the case? Oh, man. that Yeah, furry weapons of climate resilience. I love it. There's so many ways people describe beavers. Um, from my favorite is walking chicken nuggets, but the weapons <laughs> of climate resilience is also good. Um, I think what I see as being most impactful and most valuable and probably what's resonating the most, at least in my local communities out here in California, is the wildfire aspect. So we see fires uh, increasing in their size and their intensity and their frequency year after year. And we are trying all sorts of I think very clever ways to get these fires into a little bit more of a controlled and good state. Like we do need fire in California. That's not really the question here. The question is like, do we want to have these massive catastrophic mega fires? Probably not. Um, but what we're seeing over and over again is that even within some of the most destructive wildfires that this state and this country has ever seen, these beaver ponds are staying green and intact. And that ecosystem is thriving. Even as there's walls of flame encircling these patches of the landscape, there is cool water and trees and food and habitat that animals can go to and hide in and wait out those flames. And then once the fire has moved on and burned away everything else in the landscape, this patch remains and those animals remain. And in many cases, the beavers remain to sort of kickstart that restoration post-fire. They're like very seriously these little oases of habitat, but also hope in the face of these increasingly catastrophic megafires. Well, Ben, I know it's hard to improve on that, but anything else you want to add? <laughs> yeah, Emily. Emily, uh, she's she's got a, a way of speaking for the beavers for sure. I mean, I guess I guess the, you know the one thing that I would say is that you know here in the in the American West, you know, climate change is causing increased drought and and wildfire, um, whereas in other places like the Northeast uh, and uh, and in Europe, uh, you know, climate change also means uh, increased flooding, right? These really destructive flood events. So actually, in, in England and Scotland, uh, there are there you know where where Eurasian beavers, which is kind of a sister species to uh, our North American beavers, uh, you know, were historically prevalent. Then they oh, we seem to be losing Ben. They were a little trapped bit. Oh, out. There you are. Uh, yeah. In large part. Um, you know, they've, they've been, so Eurasian beavers have been reintroduced to the UK in large part for their flood control benefits, right? So if you get a big, you know, a big surge of, of, uh, of stormwater racing down a stream, you know, potentially very destructive, well, that, that surge of stormwater hits those beaver ponds and wetlands and, you know, it gets stored in the ponds or it gets spread out laterally onto the floodplain or it gets, you know, stored underground, right? Beavers are capturing lots of groundwater. So, 
beavers are, are really good flood mitigators as well as drought mitigators. So I think that's you know worth contemplating for a moment, right? We've got these two kind of polar opposite climate impacts, drought on one end, flood on the other end, uh, and beavers are helping us address both by kind of stabilizing and, and modulating flows. So I think that's, that's pretty magical that beavers are fighting uh, climate change on, on both ends. A lot of people move beavers when they're busy where we don't want them to be. I, I saw a clip on YouTube from an old documentary showing them literally dropped from planes in the sky in boxes with parachutes. Can you just drop a beaver anywhere and they, they make a new home for themselves, Emily? Um, I'm going to say no. Uh, <laughs> you So theoretically, yes, because beavers are incredible engineers. They're second only to humans in their ability to modify a landscape and make it suit their needs. I mean, there are beavers living in what is definitely not good habitat, like downtown San Jose, very urban streams, very little food. They're thriving. So yeah, maybe you could drop a beaver anywhere and it would do okay, but that's not a good way to do relocation. I mean, this is a, a living creature. We need to consider the animal wear, welfare whenever we're interacting with them in that context. But there's also so much work that we can do as people to prepare sites for them and to make it so that these relocations and translocations are done in a responsible and highly effective way. So a lot of the streams in the American West already pretty degraded, not in excellent state right now, very low flows, really disconnected from their floodplains, very little vegetation. We can go in and do what's called low-tech process-based restoration to sort of nudge that stream back into a healthier state. We back can into add- a healthier state from a state of dystopia. We're talking about one of nature's top environmental engineers, the beaver. I'm joined by Emily Fairfax and Ben Goldfarb talking about what we can do to improve our relationship with these fuzzy fuzzy superheroes. Uh, Have you had a personal encounter with a beaver? What happened? Email or call us, 866-733-6786. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You are listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and this hour we are talking about an environmental superhero who's both cute and, well, what can we say, fabulous. Um, <laughs> we are talking with a panel of experts on the beaver. Emily Fairfax, Assistant Professor of Environmental Science and Resource, Resource Management at Cal State University's Channel Islands campus. Ben Goldfarb, journalist and author of the book Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. And also with us, Chad Dibble, Deputy Director of California's Department of Fish 
and Wildlife. Uh, Chad, hang on one second. I'm just going to go to you right after I give people the number to call with your questions for the Celestrious Beaver panel. Um, the number, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Also, we are monitoring our email forum at kqed.org. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Just look for at KQED forum. All right. All that said, Chad, tell, tell us, first of all, what's the big picture? How many beavers are there in California? And where are well, they located? First off, let me say good morning and thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and the public today. And we're really excited about where we're going with respect to beavers. Um, to your question, uh, I, I don't have the exact numbers. Uh, Dr. Fairfax would have a better account of that than I could. She could probably rattle something off. Um, so we can probably turn back to her. Um, but I, I really want to take this time just to share with you where we're going as a department and how the department is really embracing this paradigm shift with beavers. Um, we, we have enough evidence to show that, you know, watersheds and fish populations can benefit greatly from beaver restoration efforts. So really the, the moment we're in now is about us bringing all of our collective knowledge and opportunities together in a comprehensive approach. You know, to date uh, and in more recent years, we, the state has spent millions of dollars partnering with tribes, uh, NGOs, private landowners, and state and federal agencies to successfully implement beaver restoration projects. So that's not really new to us. However, the, the change from our past management efforts is for the department to now really build on all of our experiences and take a more holistic and proactive approach towards bringing beavers back onto the landscape. So this really yeah. includes learning from what we've done in the past, prioritizing restoration projects, fostering partnerships, uh, updating and adapting uh, policies and practices that support beaver management and conservation, and taking an evidence-based approach for better defining the critical role that the beavers play in our water resource management strategies and really help implement climate actions on our natural and working lands. Okay, Chad, I'm going to stop the press release there for half a second because I want to ask you some tough questions, right? As we mentioned earlier in this program, uh, you can apply for an, a permit through the Department of Fish and Wildlife to kill be beavers today, and it, it happens. I mean, you know, not, not as much as it used to in the past, but it does happen. And at the same time, relocating beavers is illegal in California. So, so um, what's going on there? How does that reflect, you know, a, ch a changing attitude at the department? Correct. You, you uh, need to get a per permit from us uh, if you're having depredation issues with beavers and, and, and having human beaver conflict. Um, part of what I'm talking about this comprehensive approach is for us to really take a hard look at our policies and our practices. And we're currently revising our depredation policies to uh, address this more holistic, embraced approach of, of working on the landscape um, with our partners and with people that are dealing with these conflicts to really think through strategies. And I think it was Dr. Fairfax that mentioned there's all sorts of uh, resources and, and uh, tools available to help coexist and, and live on the land with beavers and on our properties. So we're working to expand our toolkit of those resources to support exclusion methods that help mitigate areas where we have this human beaver conflict. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is um, currently it is the law and that is uh, what the department is um, tasked with doing is, is to issue permits as the law allows. 
Well, the calls are coming in fast and furious, so why don't we go to the phones right away and talk to Charles in Pleasant Hill. Hi, Charles. All right, thank you for taking my call. What's your question? Uh, uh, well, I'm a truck driver, and uh, I see a lot of roadkill uh, from animals, like different kind of animals, skunks, badgers, all types of different uh wildlife is being killed by traffic and uh your host had talked about relocating some of these beavers into possibly urban centers or urban areas or where people live around and i'd just like to know is there any type of mitigation that help protect the beavers from traffic and you know i like to see our state do a lot more to protect the wildlife from uh, all these roads going through their land. You know, they just like the animals have no place to live or call their own home. And it's like, you know, uh, we, we take everything from them. We don't even give them a place to stay. So, I, you know, that's a very real concern of mine. Or will these beavers be safe? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Charles. Um, well, so, so Chad, any thoughts on that? I, you know, are, are we thinking enough about beaver welfare in California? I think we are. We're, we're really embracing connectivity on all sorts of species. Uh, I think you'll see some of that in the governor's uh, budget this year to help support these activities. Um, as far as the beaver relocations, you know, where we're thinking and where we're at in this space is we really want to work with uh, the right communities, work with landowners, work with partners that uh, have the right opportunities to put beavers and potentially relocate them. We don't want to put them where we think we're going to have continued issues or um, human beaver conflicts. So our goal is to work with willing partners, tribes, landowners, et cetera, to find the right locations. And I think it was Dr. Fairfax that mentioned uh, ensuring that we're preparing the lands to move these beavers to. So that, that is our goal is to figure out how we can potentially take beavers in areas from, from areas where we have that conflict to areas where we potentially do not have that conflict and they can provide those ecosystem benefits that we so desperately need. Robin writes, Napa County protects beavers. The beavers were practically thrown a parade when they arrived back after having been fur-trapped out nearly 170 years earlier. Our county biologists and flood control district were already savvy to the invaluable benefits of beavers. The community loves them, she goes on. But, Robin, we we got to get everybody in here. Uh, JJ tweeted earlier this morning, can we use beaver to clean up stormwater runoff in suburban settings? Are they pollution tolerant? Can we educate suburbanites to coexist with them? Emily, thoughts on that? Yeah, beavers are surprisingly pollution tolerant. There have been studies out of the Midwest and the East Coast and Colorado showing beavers living in acid mine drainage, so really toxic water full of heavy metals and literally acid coming out of these old mines, and they just build dam after dam after dam. And each one is just like a little bit more filtration. That wetland settles out a little bit more of the contamination into the sediments where it gets buried over time. And after you get through maybe 10 or 12 beaver dams, the ponds at the bottom and that downstream water, super clean and clear. Now, obviously this is gonna vary based on what kind of pollutants are in the system and 
you know, how many beaver dams you have, but there's definitely potential there for them to filter water that's runoff in these urban and semi-urban areas, as long as the beavers are being supported and there is good habitat for them there to start with. Mm, yeah, good habitat for, to start with. <laughs> I'm not always sure how much that's the case, but let's take another call. How about Heidi and Martinez? Hi there. I'm very happy to be hearing this conversation and really just wanted to say that in my town, we um, made a decision back in 2007 to coexist with our beavers, and we installed one of those pipes that Emily mentioned, and uh, nobody really even believed it might work. And it did its job in controlling our pond height for a decade. And because of the new dams the beavers built and the new habitat they cleaned out, uh, we got otters and new birds and new fish and really a dynamic structure in the middle of an urban stream. And I started the organization Worth the Dam to teach other cities how and why to do this important work to coexist with beavers in the green belt. What what a wonderful uh, work, Heidi. Thank you so much for, for, for sharing that story. Uh, Chad, are there, is there like one particular place in California you want to give a shout out to, you know, where, where local authorities are doing a really good job of, of helping us all coexist with beavers? Oh, I think we might have lost him already. Uh, uh, <laughs> Emily, you want to answer that question? Yeah. So a couple places that come to the top of my mind when I think about where beavers are really being supported in California is down in San Luis Obispo County, where the San Luis Obispo Beaver Brigade has been advocating for them and encouraging people to support these beavers and live alongside them, guiding nature walks. Really similar work has been done um, up at the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center, where the Bring Back the Beaver campaign has been for over a decade educating the community and public about these beaver benefits and really rallying a lot of grassroots support for them. And then that that permeates out. That gets the county officials and city officials involved. That then gets the state officials involved. And suddenly you have these pockets of just absolute, you know, beaver happiness and coexistence and parades like sort of has been alluded to on this call. But really what you have is a community that's invested in their climate future and that is willing to partner beyond just with their own fellow humans, but also with nature and with beavers to do that. Danny, the engineer, tells me, Chad, you are still with us. Do, do you have a special place you want to shout out to? Uh, not a special place. I, I just appreciate all the work we've done so far. We've we've spent, as I mentioned, millions of dollars working with partners to not only enhance uh, properties that are there uh, or, or some of our mountain meadows and wetlands that we have currently where, where beavers are, but really through our restoration efforts with UC Davis and Siskiyou County in, in the recent past to identify beaver dam analogs and trying to build habitat in the hopes that beavers will take over those projects and, and flourish in those areas where we've uh, found the right place for them to be. Beautifully put. Uh, yes, and I, I love the, the shout out to Siskiyou County. Um, 
Thank you so much, Chad, for joining us today. That's Chad Dibble, Deputy Director of the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. We're bringing on uh, our last panelist today, Frankie Myers, Vice Chair of the Yurok Tribe based near the Klamath River. Uh, born and raised along the Klamath River on the Yurok Indian Reservation in an area without phones or electricity, uh, now he raises his family in the traditional village of Kennick uh, with his wife, and five children. Frankie, thank you so much for being here. Squinicoy, uh, <laughs> thank you for having me. Much appreciated. The, you know, your tribe has done a lot of work trying to restore beavers uh, to the habitat. Tell us what that work is and, and how it's impacted your efforts around particularly salmon fishery. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a couple uh, like principles that that we have to be clear on when we're speaking of beavers. I think the first one that we really have to lean into, uh, beavers are always right. Always. Uh, The second one is there's no beaver-human conflict. There's only human conflict. Uh, And I think when you start with those two principles, they really guide what we've learned, having lived with beavers for, for thousands of years here, is that it's an extremely important part of our way of life not only as indigenous people, but as human beings here on this planet and the interaction we have with our partners that we believe in traditionally that beavers are, are part of our community, they should be a part of our, our villages and our ecosystem. Uh, we know uh, the incredible work that beavers do to help provide the absolutely critical habitat for our juvenile salmonids uh, and the robust uh, benefits we have to our ecosystem as a whole. Uh, and I love this conversation that we're having today and the, the input we're getting from uh, callers. That's a, These are the type of things that really make me excited uh, because I feel like we are shifting this narrative to more of a traditional viewscape of beavers and the ecosystem. Uh, the gentleman who called in who was a truck driver is spot on. Uh, you know, this is the world that they live in and we live in it with them. I think this really idea that we don't live in this world, but we're a part of it has to really been taken to heart across the across the state and really across the nation. The counties that and the cities that are doing good to really embrace that concept, I think, have really seen all of the amazing benefits. The tribe's been doing beaver log analog uh, for about a decade and a half now, really trying to mimic in the places that beavers don't exist. Uh, the type of work that they would naturally do. And we've seen huge successful stories uh, of places and streams and tributaries where we have gone in and did the the beaver analog dams and beavers have actually taken it over. There's a project we just finished up uh, this last spring over in the Reading area uh, where we weren't even done with, with the restoration project uh, halfway through a beaver had already been like, we got this from here, guys, we're, we'll take it. We got to uh, pull our stuff out and get it ready. So uh, we, we've seen the, the amazing benefits and really just want to highlight to folks that humans and beavers have lived successfully together for tens of thousands of years. And we really hope that, you know, the rest of the country and the communities that are seeing the successes can help spread the word. Ben Goldfarb, I, I, I don't want to lose you in this conversation. Let's get you back, uh, perhaps answering uh, some a question from Dan, who writes, where does it make the most sense to encourage the proliferation of beavers, and where does it make the least sense? And we'll, we'll just limit this to California. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, great, a great question. Uh, I mean, I, th- I, I think that 
you know, look, I mean, beavers, obviously they, they're, they're kind of their amazing uh, capacity is that they, you know, there are just so many different ecological issues that they're capable of addressing, right? Uh, you know, and, and uh, Emily and uh, Frankie and Chad and others have, you know, have, have got, have kind of described some of those, but, you know, I, th I think that there's an opportunity to use beavers in a really targeted way. You know, if you've got um, a stream with sensitive salmonids, you know, as like, like Frankie mentioned, you know, coho, especially, uh, you know, juvenile coho salmon do really, really well well uh, in, in beaver habitats. So, you know, maybe there's an opportunity uh, to use beavers in a strategic way to enhance coho, coho habitat. You know, maybe you've got uh, stormwater issues uh, in, a, in a neighborhood. Well, beavers are fantastic uh, wetland creators that, uh, that really do a great job at mitigating stormwater pollution, you know. So, so I think that there are opportunities to use beavers and beaver-based restoration in a really targeted way uh, to help us solve some of these specific ecological problems problems, you know, rather than, you know, kind of big, heavy-handed, uh, more engineered solutions. How often does a, a radio host get to say, I got to talk about targeted beaver use today? <laughs> uh, we've got just a little bit of time uh, before the break, but why don't we bring in Buddy from Story Wyoming and uh, just start that conversation. Buddy, are you there? Can you hear me? Hi, Buddy. I can hear you. Yeah, hey, I was just going to talk to you guys about, uh, I've been giving Yellowstone tours here for, oh, six years or so, but the, uh, the 1988 fires that we had that came through and took out, I don't know, 40% uh, of a giant park um, were partly due to the fact that we uh, we didn't have wolves in the park uh, that, w that existed for long enough, which moves the, the elk and the bison and the, the large grazing animals off of the riverbanks. And so <laughs> the introduction of the wolf was uh, meant to restore Yellowstone to what it is today. And, and that, well, not what it is today, but what it, what it was, it's gotten better. But the beaver was a huge part of that. The wolves came in and moved off the uh, large grazing animals off the rivers, and then the beavers were allowed to slowly come back, which would help prevent all kinds of problems, but that huge fire wouldn't have occurred. I mean, wouldn't there's... have occurred. Uh, buddy, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought because we're going into a break just now. We're talking about one of nature's top superheroes, the beaver, uh, with Emily Fairfax, Ben Goldfarb, and Frankie Myers. Uh, have you removed a beaver from your property or had property destroyed by a beaver? We want to hear the other side, too. Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org, but whatever you do, stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and we are talking about beavers. In fact, when we left off, we were talking specifically about species reintroduction. Buddy from Story, Wyoming, was talking about the fact that it is, it's a complicated thing. You're, it's like you're looking at a chessboard. There are many moving pieces. And I think we can agree, Ben Goldfarb, that there's no going back. There's, there's only what we can do better going forward. Right. I think that's true. You know, certainly we're never going to get 400 million beavers back in North America. But, you know, I like Buddy's point about beavers and wolves working together. I think that's exactly right, because as, as Buddy pointed out, you know, one of the things that's holding beavers back is that there's, you know, there's just not enough food and building material for them along along many streams, right? They need willow and other kind of streamside plants to eat and build with. And one of the reasons that, you know, we lack that in some places, it's, you know, it's overgrazing uh, due to livestock. Uh, and in some places, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, uh, it's wild uh, grazers, you know, overpopulation of deer and and elk and other uh, other other wild grazers, you know, and in, in those cases, uh, you know, bringing back predators like wolves, uh, you know, can really be helpful to kind of reduce some of that grazing pressure, let those plants regrow, and and give beavers a place to live. So uh, recently, you know, a group of scientists proposed this kind of giant westwide rewilding featuring beavers and wolves. You know, these two kind of keystone species uh, that that work together. Uh, in a really important way. So I think that thinking about beavers and wolves as this kind of collaboration almost on the landscape um, can, can really do a lot of that ecological good. Uh, you know, I, you mentioned a word there that I, I think is also catching on with a lot of people, scientists and otherwise, rewilding. Um, you know, Frankie, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about what the challenges were rewilding even in, you know, a, a relatively, relatively undamaged uh, uh, landscape. Or maybe I'm wrong. May, maybe you faced way more challenges than a lot of people would imagine. No, there are a lot of challenges uh, all over this country. We've seen, you know, 150 years, 300 years of, of improper management and mismanagement. I think one thing that we really have to stay clear of, though, uh, is this idea of a wilderness and, and really knowing that, all of this continent was managed by indigenous people and the landscape and the forest that we've seen when Europeans and, and settlers came to California here was really a landscape that was 100% managed by indigenous people. So although I, I really do understand the concept of rewilding, I do often have to remind folks uh, that tribal people were here, we were active land managers and we managed the landscape as a whole. That idea of, of getting back to landscape level management does have a lot of uh, obstacles that we have to overcome, uh, jurisdiction, who's in charge of it, what regulatory hurdles we have to go through to actually even do a lot of the good work. We struggle with a lot of the current forest management practices, whether it's timber harvest or whether it's suburban uh, sprawl. So there, there are a lot of challenges, even in areas as remote as uh, the York Reservation here up on the Klamath River, uh, we do still find that there are challenges for sure. 
but I think the the movement that we've been working with uh, California and others to really look at a holistic landscape and really manage uh, as for beavers in a holistic way is really proving to be true. But definitely there are, I would say one of the things that we continue to promote and continue to push is that we as people look at our cities and our suburbs and our towns in the same way that we look at our national parks, that they are ecosystems and we really need to start getting back to that. So the, the idea of rewilding with the idea that we need to start integrating ourselves back into a system like an ecosystem is really, really important. And we support that. You know, along those lines, Emily, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk to the fact that, you know, we really did pave paradise and put up a parking lot. Um, uh, you know, how how do we make rewilding work in the suburban context? That's a great question. And I think to some extent it's going to vary based on what kind of suburban context you're in, right? Not every town or city is the same. But a big part of it, from my perspective, is start with education, get the community on board. You need people to feel invested in their communities. And when they're in sort of rough states and there's pavement everywhere, it can be hard to feel invested in that. You might feel like, oh, this is a lost cause. I, I wanna move out into the forest where I can be peaceful. And I don't think that's right. I think similar to what Frankie was saying, we need to feel connected and like we're part of all of these ecosystems, urban, suburban, more rural. And then, you know, people are more willing to make that space to say, hey, you know what, a beaver moved into this creek and it runs right behind my house and I lost 30 square feet of my property to that flooding and that's okay. Like that's what we need. We need people to accept that it's going to change when you bring beavers back. It's not going to look the same, just a beaver in the stream. There's going to be more water. There's going to be more vegetation. There's going to be more chaos, honestly. It's messy and that's a really good thing. We want it to look that way. Beautifully put. Uh, let's get a few comments and questions in. Uh, one listener tweets, our city is putting in stormwater catchments to put rainwater into the ground, hold it, and avoid flooding. I think a beaver could do this cheaper. Kate writes, I co-lead the Bring Back the Beaver campaign at the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center. Sonoma Water Agency has been doing a great, great work to coexist with beavers in downtown Sonoma on Friar Creek. Um, let's see. Laurie writes, it seems important that we work to keep beavers in urban spaces. Urban beavers may be a way to help preserve animal populations and diversity on a small scale, much like planting a pollinator garden. Uh, the water they retain can also create microclimates that help cool local areas during heat waves. Uh, and a beaver dam can provide excellent filtration for a stream. I think it's fairly clear Laurie is another beaver believer. <laughs> um, well, so, so why don't we turn now to, to wildfires? Because, you know, we're kind of in the thick of it. And I'm, I'm wondering, Emily, can, can you explain some of the science as to how beavers uh, can be crit critical helpmates uh, when it comes to fending off wildfires in California? Yeah, I guess to start, most simply, if I asked you to go start a campfire, you would go gather the driest sticks and leaves you could find um, because that's what burns easily. If you were to go out and bring back the wettest leaves and a pile of soggy sticks, like I would not invite you on a camping trip again. That's not a good way to start a fire. And it's the exact same concept with these beaver complexes and these beaver ponds. They're storing so much water. Every time we have a rainstorm, every time there's just a little bit more snow than average, they store that water in the ponds, in these canals that they dig that radiate out into the landscape. That water seeps into the soil and the earth acts like this huge sponge just sucking up water. And then when we have droughts, 
there's so much water stored in that landscape that the plants are effectively being irrigated. They are fully lush and green and healthy and happy, no issues there, um, they stay wet. And then when you have an ignition event, whether that's a lightning strike or a match or a power line, um, whatever's starting the fire, it's going to burn whatever's driest. And these beaver complexes, by virtue of storing all of that water every time there's wet period, they're not dry. And so they're really hard to burn. The fires will come up to them. And then it's just, it's very challenging to push through that soggy sponge. So it'll burn around or it'll stall or it'll blow over as embers in the wind. But that patch of landscape where the beavers are and where they've been working, it's too wet to burn. Beautifully put. I, you know, I, we have so many calls and comments coming in. It is is fierce, but I, I'm hoping in the time we have left uh, that we can perhaps consider uh, this question coming in uh, from Nan on the phone. Uh, Nan from Orchid, California. Hi, Nan. Thank you. Excellent conversation. I'm extremely glad and relieved to hear that the state of California is finally getting with the program. Um, law was mentioned, and I, if you could address, anyone could address, is anyone working on changing those laws um, to incorporate the scientific, you know, evidence-based knowledge that we have? And if so, you know, who's working on that? Is someone working on that? And it, could you speak to that? Thank you very much. Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, Nan, who wants to take that on? Emily, Ben, Frankie? I can jump in to start. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things to point out is with this new California investment in beaver restoration, there is a lot of effort, not necessarily to change the laws, but to figure out how these laws can be interpreted and applied in a way that does lead to more sustainable and humane management of beavers. So there's definitely work being done by the state on this front. I've worked with lots of CDFW employees uh, and staff, and there's a shocking number of beaver believers in there that have been chipping away at this for a long time. Um, So rest assured, there's work being done, although maybe it's not as high profile as people would like. You're listening to Forum, and we're talking about beavers today. Uh, what questions do you have about the role beavers might play in climate change or wildfire mitigation? Uh, email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. I hesitate to give out the number again at this point because we have so many questions in the queue. But suffice it to say, you are listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. So let's let's go back to the phones again. Uh, that was a great comment uh, from Nan. And I'm wondering, uh, Ben, Frankie, do you have any other thoughts about, you know, what kind of legislation uh, is in the pipeline or, or legislation you'd like to see next? Yeah, I'll hop on here real quick. I think one of the piece of legislation's laws that we'd like to see is really our ability to work with our partners throughout the state and to really be able to move beavers into areas that we have been, you know, working on to bring the habitat uh, up and be able to really transfer them. I think that's one of the things that is holding us back a little bit from really expanding the beaver population and the good work that beavers can do. Um, the other thing that we, you know, often also have conversations on is, uh, you know, trying to streamline our restoration efforts uh, that really are solely focused on beaver restoration and in-stream restoration. Those, those I feel like are a couple of the areas that would really help expedite the, the restoration process that all of the beaver believers are trying to do. <laughs> Uh, Thank you so much for that terrific question, Nan. Let's talk next with Eddie in San Francisco. Hi, Eddie. 
Hi, yeah. I just wanted to share a lovely experience that I had. I was fortunate enough to be taken to a, visit a beaver complex in around Atascadero, California. And we walked about a half a mile through this disconnected floodplain. And it was dry. It was dusty. It was hot. It was not very pleasant. And then we got to this beaver complex. And it was amazing. The temperature dropped probably 10 degrees. The water was cool and crystal clear. I was there with my six-year-old, my two-year-old, and my wife, and we all had such an amazing time experiencing what it's like to be around these beaver complexes. So I hope that others in California can go and visit these sites. And I also hope that as Fish and Wildlife is adjusting their rules and process, that they recognize the scope of the opportunity here and allow for third parties like NGOs to do thoughtful relocation because we need more beavers on the landscape and we need it quickly. Thank you. Great, great comments, Eddie. Uh, Cecile writes, just a small correction about beavers in Europe. They were widespread but heavily hunted all over Europe and Eurasia, so European settlers would have known them and their dams when they saw them in America, which I guess means no no excuses. Uh, they did not behave well, um, a listener writes, I find it interesting we're trying to recruit animals to help us with human problems we created. I've heard about goats and sheep being used to clear brush, now beavers to bring in wetlands. If we'd let the animals alone in the first place, we would have been better off. Uh, let's take another call, Jerry in North Bay. Hi. Hi, Hello. Jerry. Yes, we can hear you. Yeah, well, actually, two things. One, I was listening, and the gentleman that said, uh, rewilding is a bad word. I kind of agree with that. It should um, perhaps like environmentally sensitive management or something. I don't know. But my main comment was this. I'm reading in National Geographic or Scientific America how in India they're building dams to slow down the flow of water to the ocean, which replenishes their water tables. We have water tables all over California dropping, and it seems like the beaver dams would do the same thing. Yeah. Who, who wants to take that on? Emily, Ben, Frankie? Sure, I can, I can, I can jump in. I, I, I think the caller is exactly right. You know, beavers are amazing agents of groundwater storage, right? When you look at a beaver pond, you know, there's all of the visible surface water you can see, but what you don't necessarily see is the weight of that water forcing still more water into the ground, recharging aquifers, hydrating soils, raising that water table. And, you know, eventually a lot of that groundwater flows very gradually downstream and then percolates back up through the stream bed and actually feeds the, the surface water again, contributes back to the stream. So beavers are spreading water out, forcing water into the ground, kind of recharging this, that, that floodplain sponge. And uh, obviously in California, you know, groundwater withdrawal is such an issue. You know, beavers certainly are uh, one viable way to increase groundwater storage again. The caller, I think, is exactly right. Susie tweets, just a plug for a terrific documentary to watch with kids. Leave it to beavers. Loved it, and it made my family fall in love with this animal. Thanks for the show. Well, you know, that raises a really great uh, way to take us out here. I'm, I'm wondering from each of you, why don't we start with Frankie? Uh, what's, what's a book or, you know, a documentary or really, you know, maybe a, maybe a nature stroll you recommend uh, to help our, our listeners connect with the beavers. 
Frankie, have we lost you? Oh, sorry about that. I oh, did yeah. have just a great answer. I was on mute. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're we're uh, There are really a, a, a couple good uh, documentaries out there. The one that was mentioned is is really good as well. Uh, I would encourage going on to uh, the York Tribes website. We do a report of the work that we did in the the restoration um, work for Beaver Analogs in Siskiyou County, um, in Tehama County, in Humboldt County as well. Uh, there's not as much, I think, as we would like, though. I will say, I think there definitely has to do some more. We need, like, a, a beaver PR, because I don't feel like we have really done and did a, a huge push across uh, the state as much as we should have to get the good message words out about the beaver. So, unfortunately, uh, I think there are a couple good places, but um, definitely some more PR is needed. <laughs> well, one, one of our show producers says, this is beaver PR. <laughs> Uh, ben, what are your recommendations for somebody who wants to learn more about beavers, aside from reading your book? I was going to say, I think my own, my own book is pretty fun. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, the documentary, The Beaver Believers, which uh, which Emily mentioned, is uh, is is really really wonderful. Uh, you know, I think that Emily's own papers are are fabulous. Uh, you know, especially her paper uh, documenting their benefits for for wildfire mitigation. You know, I mean, I think beaver people had kind of anecdotally known for a long time that, uh, you know, beavers helped with wildfire, right? Wetlands don't burn. But, you know, we really needed somebody to jump in and prove, uh, you know, in the peer-reviewed literature that uh, there's a strong beaver wildfire connection. And Emily's paper uh, did uh, did exactly that. And I think really, really uh, helped to kind of get the, the beaver PR uh, campaign rolling. You know, she proposed that the Forest Service change its mascot from Smokey Bear to Smokey the Beaver, which I thought was a pretty ingenious idea. So I think, I think uh, you know, I know scientific papers are not always the easiest read, but Emily's is, is really, really interesting. And uh, I think for a scientist, uh, quite beautifully written. Well, uh, Emily, we've run out of time, but boy, you got a nice plug in there. And I think it's fair to say that this has been an hour of mutual admiration for beavers. They're just wonderful. Thank you again to all of my guests. Emily Fairfax, Assistant Professor of Environmental Science and Resource Management at California State University, Channel Islands. Ben Goldfarb, author of the book Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Uh, Frankie Myers, vice chair of the Yurok tribe based near the Klamath River. And, of course, earlier, Chad Dibble, deputy director, California Department of Fish and Wildlife. I had a great time. I hope you did, too, the listeners. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. You've been listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.